Hello. This is the fourth podcast in Clifford Chance's series of construction law conversations. My name is Kenneth Tay, and today we will be discussing notable construction cases decided by the Singapore courts in 2022. We're joined today by Paul Sandersham, who is based in Singapore and heads our Southeast Asian disputes practice in the energy, infrastructure, and resources space. Thank you, Kenneth. 2022 continued to be a challenging year for the construction industry with stakeholders feeling the impact of COVID-19 as well as inflationary pressures. That's right. We continue to see a steady stream of arguments relating to the impact of COVID-19 and whether it prevented performance of contracts or triggered force majeure clauses. And on top of that, our clients also felt the impact of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Lawyers have certainly been on the lookout for cases that might signal how arguments premised on these events might be received by the courts and tribunals. One Singapore decision attracted some attention for this reason. The Court of Appeal made a comment in that case that the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting lockdowns were force majeure events. The court also suggested that the, quote, shortage of labour and materials due to the COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns and the prohibition of travel between countries and ensuing disruption of supplies and manufacture of goods and material, unquote, were force majeure events. That case is Sir Kim Khoi and GTMS Construction. And if you'd like to read further into it, all the cases we'll be discussing today will be listed on the webpage for this podcast. So Paul, how helpful is this case if you're considering arguments concerning disruptions to a project flowing from COVID-19? Well, if you're looking to make a stronger argument in negotiations with your counterparty, you might point to this decision as a helpful indicator of the likely attitude of the Singapore courts. However, it's important to note two things. First, this is a passing comment by the Court of Appeal. It didn't actually have to consider in this case whether the fallout of COVID-19 was a force majeure event because that wasn't an issue in dispute. Secondly, it's also important to consider the specific force majeure provisions in your contract. The strength of these arguments may depend on how the clauses are drafted. Force majeure clauses do not all operate in the same way. For example, your force majeure clause may refer to a closed list of force majeure events, or there may be express exclusions for some types of events. We may also exclude the impact of changes in law entirely because there's a different mechanism dealing with changes in law. A change of law clause may well be the better route for dealing with things like lockdowns and restrictions on travel. Sir Kim Khoi is a lengthy judgment from the Court of Appeal that deals with a number of other issues that might be of interest to our listeners, including an architect's duties in contract and tort, the differences between a temporary occupation permit and a completion certificate, and whether the completion certificate could be issued in this case without the temporary occupation permit. Uh, the court also considered numerous clauses in the SIA conditions, which is a commonly used standard form construction contract in Singapore. So it's well worth a more detailed read if you're in the construction industry in Singapore. So what other highlights do you have for us, Paul? Well, one of the aspects of the SIA conditions considered in that case was whether the contractor needed to make a notification of a relevant event, direction or instruction before the contractor would be entitled to an extension of time. 
This requirement of written notice or written application before a court would find an extension or valid variation is something that was considered in a number of other cases last year. Yes, there were two other Court of Appeal judgments that involved these issues. Diamond Glass, decided in December last year, involved conditions precedent for an extension of time. Vim Engineering, decided in January this year, involved alleged conditions precedent for valid variation. Could you summarize the key takeaways for our listeners? I think the upshot of these cases is as follows. If you want to make sure that there will only be an extension of time or a valid variation if there's a written instruction, written notice, or a written application, then the contract should ideally expressly state that 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 written document is a condition precedent. It can be surprising to parties and to non-lawyers that if the contract merely states that there has to be a written instruction or written notice, but it doesn't expressly say what happens if the parties don't observe that, that's often not good enough to disentitle the contractor or subcontractor from recovering additional payment or getting an extension of time. The Court of Appeal expresses this very clearly in BIM Engineering when it held that the variation clause was, to quote, not drafted in a stringent manner requiring strict compliance, failing which a variation claim will fail. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because even if you have a tightly drafted variation and extension of time clause, you'd still have to be careful not to waive any of those provisions. So obviously, it's not helpful to have well-drafted provisions that protect you if you are not going to apply them. If you're recognizing variations and granting extensions of time, notwithstanding that necessary requirements have not been complied with, then a court or tribunal may find that you have waived these requirements and you may have difficulty insisting on strict compliance in subsequent litigation. Right. So recognizing claims despite the failure to satisfy conditions precedent, that's potentially a clear-cut case of a waiver. Uh, Could you give us some examples of how a party's conduct might inadvertently give rise to waiver arguments. One way that waiver arguments crop up is after parties convene a meeting to discuss unresolved issues. So it's very important that parties are careful about how they approach these meetings. Typically, the meeting will be documented in minutes and one party might subsequently try to rely on the minutes to show that the other party considered the variation claims or the extension of time claims. They'll then say that this demonstrates that the strict contractual requirements had been waived. Now, parties can avoid this by agreeing in advance that the meeting will be held on a without prejudice basis and then mark any documents recording the discussions and the phrase without prejudice. And what that does in very simple terms is to make clear that all those communications cannot be relied on in any subsequent court or arbitral proceedings. Right. And if, for whatever reason, your counterparty won't agree that the meeting is a without prejudice one, and you were forced to go ahead with the meeting, uh, you could say at the meeting that nothing discussed is intended to waive your contractual rights and record that in your own notes uh, or insist that it be recorded in the jointly agreed meeting minutes. Yes, that can be very helpful. So apart from minutes of meetings, Uh, The other waiver argument that I sometimes see 
is based on documents that a contract administrator has been pressured to sign. So, for example, um, in order to move the relationship along, um, you might be pressured into signing something like a payment claim or some other document making reference to or summarizing the issues that are still in dispute between the parties. Yes, and it's totally understandable that someone might record something that sounds harmless. But a document like that, when viewed in the context of other documents, might suggest that you were considering the claim, notwithstanding the lack of strict compliance with the contract. The better way of dealing with this sort of situation might be to record that the matter will be negotiated later, but, and this is key, that the matter is subject to compliance with the relevant contractual provisions. Let's turn now to consider another aspect of the VIM engineering decision. Uh, in that case, the Court of Appeal also considered the meaning of the phrase back-to-back. -back. And I think it's a good reminder to be careful about the use of that phrase in contracts. Now, I think it's fair to say that a back-to-back -back arrangement is commonly understood even outside the construction industry, as a matter of passing liability and risk down the contractual chain. The risk is that when you use it as a, a shorthand in drafting a contract, it may not be precise enough to describe the arrangement you actually have in mind. That's right. The dispute in VIM engineering illustrates this. The variation clause in the subcontract provided that any variation works shall be on a back-to-back -back basis with the main contract. Now, if you ask the subcontractor explain what back-to-back -back means in this context, they might say it means that any variation claims are subject to the variation claims also being improved or recognized under the main contract. But the court in VIM engineering is reluctant to give the clause that meaning. Why? Well, first, the court reiterated, as is done in previous decisions, that the phrase back-to-back -back is not a term of art. The phrase has to be interpreted in light of the facts known to the parties at the time they contract and in light of the contract as a whole. In other words, the precise meaning of the phrase varies from case to case. Second, when one reads the judgment, one gets the sense that the court was influenced by the fact there were no provisions relating to how the subcontractor would be updated about the outcome of variation claims in the main contract and no requirement for variation claims to be made in good faith in a timely manner in the main contract. The general reluctance of the court to give the phrase back-to-back -back a generous interpretation is also demonstrated in the decision of the High Court in DSL Integrated Solutions, a case decided in September last year. Now, in that case, the court found that an agreement that a contract would be a back-to-back -back one, did not import all the terms of the main contract into the parties' agreement. What do you think is the key takeaway from these cases, Paul? Well, first, I think they show that if you want to flow down obligations to subcontractors, you have to be quite careful. Ideally, you need to specifically consider what the key obligations are and how they are each incorporated down the chain. Just using the phrase back-to-back -back and leaving it to the court to decide how that works would be a risky approach. Look at it from the perspective of a subcontractor. If a contractor is relying on a back-to-back -back clause, there may be arguments available to you as to why the contractor is not entitled 
take that position. Finally, let's come back to the Court of Appeals decision in Diamond Glass. Diamond Glass is also notable because of what it says about the operation of LD provisions. In summary, if you terminate a contract, you will still be able to make a claim for liquidated damages pursuant to the LD clause in the contract. However, liquidated damages only accrue up to the date of termination. By default, after the date of termination, you will have to prove your loss in a normal way. And this follows the approach of the UK Supreme Court in a case called Triple Point Technology and PTT Public. Paul, why is this decision significant? Well, two things. First, this is relevant to decision to terminate a contract. When weighing that decision, the terminating party has to be prepared to prove a claim for damages in a normal way after termination. You also have to consider whether you can claim general damages after termination at all. It is not uncommon for LD clauses to provide that they are the sole or exclusive remedy for breach of contract. This potentially precludes a claim for general damages after termination and is relevant to whether you should terminate a contract. Second, when drafting contracts, the court in Diamond Glass suggested that you could, by a special provision, provide that LDs accrue after termination of contract. Now, some members of the UK Supreme Court also appeared to accept this, although the view was also expressed that a subcontractor may not be prepared to agree to such a clause because they will have no control over when the LDs would stop accruing. That's a fair point. I suppose it might be more palatable for a counterparty to accept that LDs will continue to accrue after termination if there is a cap on LDs. Paul, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining me on this roundup of notable Singapore court decisions from 2022. Again, all the cases we discussed today will be listed on the podcast website. We hope you found this discussion useful, and we hope you will join us again on the next Clifford Chance Construction Law Conversation.